Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles, the win without competing show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, host and creator of the Right Fit Method, the key to professional and personal success. Now let's join Dr. Arlene. Thank you, Virgil. This month marks the second year anniversary of my Win Without Competing show. Phil Boyce, the president of Talk Radio Network Syndications and the president of TRN Programming, will be joining me and you shortly. I want to thank Phil Reckia, Blog Talk Radio's Director of Programming, for selecting our show as a today's pick. Feeling your frustration and pain, I created this show in October 2008 to respond to your immediate needs for career and job solutions that work. Understanding the impact of your professional life on your personal life, I expanded the show's mission to include personal solutions. On every show, I mentor my loyal listeners on how to use my unique, effective, right-fit method. From your responses, I know that my method has changed your life. I also know that your motivation was so strong to succeed that many of you changed your behavior to implement my strategies. Congratulations. My method is now your method. It's my gift to you. Be sure to continue sharing your success stories with me. Call me at 310 310- Four four one five three zero five, or email drbarro at winwithoutcompeting.com. Many listeners have asked me to explain how I created the Right Fit Method, which is founded on the standard of the Right Fit. I have two mentors to thank the poet Robert Frost, and my father. In the fourth grade, I read Frost's poem, The Road Not Taken. I still remember the exhilaration I felt when I decided that I would take the road less traveled. Even at that age, I knew that I viewed the world through a different lens and would pursue my passion to make a difference. Many years later, I renamed the road less traveled the Right Fit Road. My father's teachings. At age six, I walked proudly hand-in-hand with my dad through the streets of Brookline, Massachusetts, the birthplace of John F. Kennedy. My father, the cantor of a synagogue, seemed to know everyone. He would greet and talk to person after person. I listened intently. After each conversation, he would ask me, what did we say? He did not want me to recall the words, but the meaning behind them. 
throughout my adulthood, he continued to teach me the most important lesson of my life. You must understand with whom you're dealing. I learned to love listening and spent a lot of time as a child, not with dolls or toys, but with my little black radio. I was busy honing my listening skills. I even pictured having my own radio show in which I would interview guests to learn with whom I was dealing. I taught myself to master the match so I would know how to create right fits. My friends flocked around me for my advice. With a small amount of information, I gave advice, which proved to be the right advice for them many years later. Shortly, I will explain how I perfected my method. But first, I want you to understand how I created the standard of the right fit. My dad taught me about standards. When we were in the market shopping for fruit, we had standards. If all the bananas were brownish and overripe, they were the wrong fit, and we did not buy them. We only bought the bananas that matched our standards. As a result of my father's teachings, I started to create standards for everything. The standard of the right fit was born. I began making all my decisions using this standard. I never compare and contrast searching for the best. Here's why. Picture a barrel of rat-infested rotten apples. Compare and contrast searching for the best. Pick one. What do you have? A rat-infested rotten apple. If you compare and contrast wrong fits and pick one, you still have a wrong fit, not the best. To find the right fit job, for example, you need to create a blueprint to which you will find the match. Your goal is to create an exquisite fit between the two, like the interlocking pieces of a puzzle. Read the foreword to my book, Win Without Competing, by the founding editor-in-chief of, of WebMD to learn how I made 40 exquisite matches. To do that, go to winwithoutcompeting.com. I will be talking more about matching with Phil Boyce. What do I want you to do? Take the road less traveled, which is the right fit road. Two topics are on everyone's mind right now, unemployment and the November election. Unemployment data. In September, 9.6% were unemployed. 17% were underemployed. Within the last two years, we've lost 3 million jobs. Do not allow this data to distract you. Start focusing on what you need to do to succeed. If you are blasting your resume from Burbank to Bombay, stop. You are branding yourself as desperate. Instead, pick up the phone and start cold calling. I know that ads say no cold calls. I repeat, pick up the phone and start calling after you have researched the company and create the right fit pitch. 
I feel the tension and see the blood draining from your faces as you contemplate making a cold call. You probably have guessed that I love cold calling. Why? I can figure out with whom I'm dealing with just a little information. I want you to learn to do what I do. I know that most of my listeners want to conduct their job search via email. If that describes you, please listen to my archived radio show, Are You Hiding Behind the Veil of Email? Go to the winwithoutcompeting.com website and visit the special call-in show page to listen to that show. I've given you enough to think about for now. On to our guest. Phil Boyce, President, Talk Radio Network Syndications, and President of Programming TRN. Phil Boyce sets the standard in selecting the top American radio talk show hosts. Prior to joining TRN, Boyce programmed WABC radio shows as well as nationally syndicated ABC radio shows. At WABC, he hired Sean Hannity in 1997 and moved him to PM Drive in New York in January 1998, just in time for the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Hannity was off to the races. Ironically, Boyce syndicated him nationwide on September 10, 2001. We all know what happened the next day. Hannity's program has been called the fastest-growing radio show in modern talk radio history. Today, he is heard on over 500 stations. Boyce discovered and hired Mark Levin at WABC and syndicated him in February 2006. Levin is now on over 200 stations. Moreover, Boyce syndicated Matt Drudge after he broke the Lewinsky scandal. At TRN, Boyce supervises 15 shows heard on over 800 radio stations across the country. The hosts include Laura Ingraham, Michael Savage, Mancow, Jerry Doyle, Rusty Humphreys, Phil Hendry, and America's Morning News. Over the years, Boyce has demonstrated that he can not only pick the right fit talk show hosts, but also fire the wrong fits if he cannot fix the fit. He has received numerous honors for his programming achievements. Notably, Boyce is a five-time Radio Inc. magazine honoree as one of the top ten major market program directors in America. Join me as I uncover how Boyce climbed the career ladder beginning at age 14 in a 1,000-watt AM daytime religious radio station in Pueblo, Colorado, to the president of TRN Syndications and the president of TRN Programming. Boyce resides in New York City. Welcome, Phil, to Win Without Competing. 
Arlene, thank you very much. It's an honor to be here, and uh, it's an honor to be on your second anniversary radio program, so congratulations to you. It's an honor to have you, Phil. You were born in a farmhouse in the Ozarks of Missouri to parents who were raised in the Depression. You started listening to the radio when you were four or five years old, which ignited your passion. Why did radio fascinate you? Boy, if I knew the answer to that question, uh, it, it would probably be worth a million dollars. I, I really don't know. I mean, I think we all get bit by some kind of a bug when we're young. And, you know, what, what makes somebody become a concert pianist? I don't know the answer. All I know is that when I was four or five years old, I was fascinated by radio, and I remember driving with my father in Cushing, Oklahoma, we drove by the radio station in that small town. It was K-U-S-H, Cush, and I saw the sign on top of the building, and I saw the antenna behind the building, and I asked my dad, how does it get from that building into this car radio? And he tried to explain it to me. And I don't know why I even remember that, but I do, just like it happened yesterday. And uh, I, I, I guess it was some fascination with the form of broadcasting. I, I, I was also fascinated with television. But it was the radio bug that really turned me on. And I was just lucky to be put in a position where I could live out that dream and pursue that interest. And it's amazing to me that I'm still doing it many years later when I know so many people that have loved radio and got into the business that had to get out, and here I am still trucking away. So... I guess the bug bit, and it stuck. And trucking away very successfully, I might add. Well, thank you, Arlene. I'm very pleased with where my career has taken me. Uh, when you start off in a radio career like I did, you have no idea where it's going to go. I had no battle plan, no, no career map. I didn't start this because I wanted to make a lot of money and, and be successful. I started it because I just loved it. I loved doing it. And, you know, I still love doing it. And, and I suppose maybe it's because of that passion that I'm still getting the opportunity to perform this uh, wonderful task every day. Your mother, she was a school teacher. What did your father do, and why was he frustrated with you? Well, my father could do anything with his hands, I don't ever remember my father having a boss. Uh, I know he must have early when he was first getting started, but by the time I came along, he was doing his own thing, and somehow he managed to support the family in his own way by building things and working with his hands. Uh, I remember my father building houses. I remember my father owning a TV repair shop. It was called Boyce and Burgess TV Repair in Cushing, Oklahoma, and uh, he could fix TVs. Now, that was back in black and white days. When color came along, it was too complicated, and so he reinvented himself, and he started to do other things. Uh, he's had a variety of different careers. He, he actually owned a farm at one time, and that's how I ended up being born in a farmhouse in the Ozarks of Missouri because my father moved our family out there. It was a rough, horrible life. And we lived on uh, a dirt road 18 miles from a small town. It was rutted and muddy, and it was easier for the doctor to come to my mother's house 
and my father's house than for us to try to get my mother to the doctor. So when I was about to arrive, they called the doctor, and I don't think everybody even had phones, but somebody did, and he came out, and I was born in the farmhouse. So uh, my my dad uh, was a farmer uh, who had, had gone through the Depression in the Dust Bowl of Oklahoma, and when he was like, I don't know, 17, 18 years old, uh, his farm, his family farm, was auctioned out from under him. And I'm, I have no doubt that was a traumatic experience for him. And it molded him forever. And he made up his mind nobody was going to take anything from him ever again. And many of us know uh, Depression-era people who are now, you know, in their 90s, they know that it, it, it profoundly affected them. My father's horse was auctioned away from him when he was a teenager. Uh, he, I, he told me years later that he had rounded up enough money to bid 9 or $10 on the horse, and he got outbid, and he lost his horse. And it was years later that he came home one day with a horse at our house. We had no place to put the horse, and I couldn't figure out why my dad did it until later I, I realized he's taking back what was taken from him. Uh, I think that's also why he ended up buying that farm in Missouri and moving us all out there. He was taken back the farm that was taken from him. And uh, my father lived a, a wonderful life. He died the month after 9-11. And, uh, you, you know, he was uh, always, you, you asked the question, why was he frustrated with me? Well, I couldn't build anything with my hands. I mean, if you looked at something I tried to construct, you would, you would say, uh, that's a two-year-old's effort. Uh, about the only thing I could do with my hands was hold the flashlight so he could change the oil on the 57 Chevy. Uh, so he was frustrated. But when I was 14, I got my first radio job. And he realized very quickly, this is going to be what Phil does. And he stopped worrying about me. And he started supporting what I did. Uh, and uh, you know, he, uh, he was always incredibly proud of everything I accomplished. I wanted to hear about your radio job when you were 14, but first I wanted you to comment about how your parents brought you up. You have four siblings. All of you have achieved career success. What advice did they give you? You know, I don't ever remember them sitting me down. I don't remember my dad sitting me down and saying, Phil, this is what you have to do with your life or my mother, I just remember them always giving us an incredible amount of support to do what we wanted to do and make a success of our life. And, and they never really considered failure as an option. Uh, and if you look at all of the things they did and the things they faced, you would understand why failure was never an option. My mother told a story of when she was very young and early married. Maybe she was 21, I don't know, but she had a two-month-old baby, my sister Donna. And my father was being shipped off, shipped off to the war, and she had to take the train across the country, and she lost her purse. And she was somehow able to beg food all the way across the country on that train. Uh, she also told me of when, she, about the same time, they moved into a, a house or an apartment where my dad had gotten a job when nobody was getting jobs, they had very little money, and they had used all of their money to pay their rent. And they didn't have any money for two weeks, but my dad did have a job. So she went to the, to the general store, and she said, you need to lend me 
enough money to live on for two weeks, and then I'll pay you back. You need to give me credit. And the guy said, I never do that. I, I can't do that. And she said, no, you need to do that. And she went back every few hours to ask this guy to do it. And I guess she wore him down because after a couple of days, he said, okay, take what you need. And she did, and they survived for two weeks, and then she paid him back like she said. Uh, you know, I don't think very many of our young people today know what it's like to beg for food, but my mother did. And uh, that just made her strong. She was such a strong woman, and I think she gave me that strength. She passed that down to me. Well, she was an outstanding role model. She also obviously was an expert in terms of pitching herself. She was relentless. Well, a yeah. lot of she, people are afraid to relentless. speak up. Yeah, they're, they're afraid to speak up for fear of rejection. Your mother didn't care. She proceeded. Well, she didn't care right because she didn't have a choice. It was either that or starve. And she wasn't going to starve, and she wasn't going to let her family starve. And, uh, you know, she had, you know, I guess a Jewish word would be chutzpah. Right. She had that, you know. She had it. Now, Pueblo, Colorado, a very special place to you, where you started your radio career. Tell us how you presented yourself at age 14 at the local radio station. Well, I was very lucky because we moved to Pueblo when I was going into second grade. And I had the radio bug then, but of course I wasn't thinking about working in radio. But when I got to the age of 14, uh, I realized there's 11 radio stations in a small town of about 100,000 people. There's too many radio stations here. And I think I could get a job. I, and I didn't want to flip hamburgers, and I didn't want to wash cars. I wanted to work in radio. So my Sunday school teacher happened to be the program director at a local little 1,000-watt AM daytimer. And so I said to him, his name is Willis, I said, Willis, would you take me to the radio station? I'd like to learn it. And he said, well, you're only 14. What do you mean? I said, no, I, I think I could do this. I, I want to learn this. I'm fascinated by it. So he said, okay, I'll take you. And I remember that first day because by the end of that first day, I was sitting at the control board running that control board. And he came over and looked at me and he said, how did you figure this out? And I said, I don't know. It's just, I just did. He said, well, you know, you're really good at this. You, you, you might be able to do this. And I said, you know, I want to. Would you help me? And he said, sure. He used to pick me up in the morning. He would open up the station and literally turn the station on, pushing the button to turn it on at 6 a.m. So I would get up early. He'd pick me up about a quarter till 6. I would, go, I would walk about five or six blocks from my house, and he would pick me up at a used car lot where he was driving by every morning. He didn't want to go out of his way to get me, but he was willing to stop and get me. And uh, we went into the station, and I would help him run that station. And, and, we, and I worked that way through the summer. And, and at some point, they put me on the air. And, uh, you know, in that kind of a situation, they didn't care how good I sounded. My voice had not changed yet. I still sounded like a girl. But I remember a tape of my newscast talking about the Vietnam War as a 14-year-old whose voice had not yet changed. You're not going to hear that tape, Marlene, that's hidden away somewhere in my archives. Nobody will ever hear that tape. I would love to hear that tape, Phil. I'm sure it sounds terrific. Well, it, 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 you know, obviously it, it, it probably does, but uh, <laughs> it was such a wonderful opportunity to learn radio at an early age, and, and uh, I'm so lucky I got to do it. But what's more amazing is that I'm still doing it. 
Well, I think what's more amazing, actually, is the fact that you became a news reporter at a young age and that you also started doing radio announcements in school. So tell us more about that, about your news reporting, which also led to you driving the station's news car. Well, I did at, at, at a very early age. And, you know, when, when every kid wants to be driving a car to high school, I was literally driving a station news car with the words KVMN News on the side of it. But let me, let me start off by telling you what happened when I was in ninth grade. And the guy at the station who did afternoons from 2 to 6 p.m. had an appendix attack, and they didn't have anybody else to go on the air, and they wanted me to do it. But my problem was I was still in junior high, and I had sixth-grade typing that I had to complete. So I, I went into school, and my parents must have helped me, talked to the principal and said, look, they want me to work for two or three weeks to fill in for this guy who's sick. Could I get out of sixth-grade typing? And they said, well, you know what? Why not? I mean, why are we teaching you sixth-grade typing so that someday you could work in a radio station? So why not? And they let me. And, and my father, who had originally you know, not been my biggest fan, was my biggest fan then because he picked me up every day uh, at the end of fifth hour and took me to the radio station where I worked. So I did this for two to three weeks. And it was after that that they asked me to do the announcements that were performed every morning by various students as students started their first period class. So I went on the announcements as if it was a newscast. And I just said something like, you know, good morning, fellow students. This is free junior high's morning news. And I read the announcements as a newscaster. Well, Coach Coxon, who was the teacher of my science class, was on the other side of the building. And he ran down the hallway to look through the glass to see, who is that kid reading this newscast? And it was me. Now, I was almost failing science. I was getting D's. And he was so amazed. He came in afterwards and he said, you know, you found your calling. You need to be on the radio. And I said, well, Coach Coxon, I already am. <laughs> and he, did, he was stunned. My grades improved in, in science for no other reason than he realized I wasn't the doofus that he thought I had been. Wonderful. But, 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 so I continued to work on radio, and I eventually got this job at KVMN, and, and the, the owner of the station said, I want you to drive the news car, and you're going to be on call if something happens, and you're going to go out and cover it. And so I did that for a while, and uh, I got fired. And at some point, I mean, if you'd like me to, I'll tell you the story well, of how I got fired. absolutely want to, because I was about to say they took your news car away from you. And I'm sure at age 17, that was traumatic. I was heartbroken, but I did something stupid. Uh, you know, usually when you get fired, you know, you do something stupid. Um, I'll tell you what, you know, I said that we had 11 radio stations, so... There were too many stations in Pueblo. It was fairly easy to get a job. I was doing news, and I loved doing news, but I wanted to be a rock and roll disc jockey. And the local rock station, which was on AM at the time, was in need of a weekend guy. I found out about this from somebody, I don't know who. They said, you know, they're looking for a weekend guy on this station. So uh, I called this guy, I think it was a Friday morning, and I said, are you looking for a weekend guy? He said, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, I am. Can you come in now? So I said, sure. And I, I came in, I met him. I said, I'd like to do it. I told him my background, where I'd been. I mean, I was young, I was 17, but I was on the air at the time. 
And he said, okay. He said, can you start this weekend? And I was stunned. I said, well, I don't know for sure. I mean, I, I have to talk to the guy that's, you know, employing me now, make sure it's okay with him. He probably won't care, but I have to make sure. He said, all right, well, you find out, but I'm putting you in the schedule. And he said, you're going to start Sunday night at 6 o'clock, and it'll be your radio show. And I said, okay, uh, thank you. And I shook his hand, and I said, let me find out. And I left. So I went, and I talked to the guy who owned the station, KVMN, who was giving me the news car. And I said, look, it's just a Sunday night thing. It's no big deal. I just want to kind of try this. You don't care, do you? And he said, well, yeah, I care. You're driving my news car. What if there's a news story that breaks? I mean, how can I call you when you're on another station? I mean, no, I'm not going to let you do that. And I was, of course, heartbroken about it, but I said, okay, I respect that, and, and I'll let him know. So I called the station that had hired me, and they said, oh, well, he, Mr. Kirst, he's gone. He, went, he, he left for the weekend, and apparently the last thing this guy had to do before he could leave was hire me. So once he hired me, he left for the weekend, and he thought he had a Sunday night guy. So I said, well, look, get word to him, please. I cannot do this show. My boss is not going to let me, and I can't do it. She said, oh, okay. Well, sometime Sunday, I had a friend call me up and said, hey, I hear you're uh, doing uh, the rock and roll show on blah, blah, blah tonight at 6 o'clock. And I said, well, no, I told him I can't do it. And, and he said, well, they're promoing you on the air, your name, the Phil Boyce Show. So I called the station's hotline, and I, I talked to the guy who answered the phone. And I said, look, I, I know that you think I'm doing a show tonight, but I can't do it. I, I'm working at this other station. He said, well, you have to do it. We don't have anybody else to do it. You have to do it. And I said, well, can't you get word to Mr. Kirsch that I can't do it? He said, no, he's gone. You have to do it. I'm not going to work a 12-hour shift. You were leaving me at 6 o'clock. So I took a deep breath. And I said, well, okay, I, I guess I will. Now, a real dilemma for a 17-year-old. I'm an, an embarrassment of riches. Here I am loving radio, wanting to do radio. And one side of me says, go ahead and do it. You probably won't get caught. <laughs> and the second side is, yeah, well, what if you do? And, of course, you're on the radio, so it's not like you can, uh, you can kind of hide what you're doing. So I did it. And, of course, I'd never been in the radio station before. I showed up about an hour before. They gave me a quick tutorial on running the board. And at 6 o'clock, I put on my headphones, and boom, I'm on the air as a rock and roll jock. And it must have been an hour and a half or two hours into the show when the, the request line rang. It was my boss at KVMN. He was mad. He said, you're fired. Bring in the news car tomorrow. So I was heart sick. I finished the shift. And, of course, the next day I did. He took away the news car. He didn't end up firing me. But I learned a lesson. And that's basically you got to dance with the one that brung you. Be careful of what you commit to do because, you know, be careful what you wish for. You may get it. Right. Well, I think also, too, the fact that he kept you really showed you how good he thought you were, even though he took away the car. Did he ever give it back to you? No, I never actually got to, 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 I mean, I may have driven it a few times, but it was never my responsibility again. And, uh, you know, look, eventually later I got to drive news cars again. I mean, I got right, to the point right. where I was driving them all the time. So I got back what was taken away and uh, ended up covering some, well, I covered some incredible news stories, but that's for another that's for another interview. Well, of course, we'd be delighted to have you back, Phil. After you graduated from high school, you went to the University of Southern Colorado. How did you further your radio career there? You know, I took uh, broadcasting classes there, but 
unlike many of the students there, I was actually doing what they were teaching many of them to do. I remember an uncomfortable moment when I was taking a, 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 a class on sports broadcasting. And I was actually doing play-by-play sports on one station, and the class was being taught by the play-by-play announcer on another station. Well, he felt a little bit of competition for me, so he gave me horrible grades. And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm actually doing this, and he's giving me worse grades than guys who can't do this. But it was okay. I mean, at least I passed the class. But I did not finish college. I was offered a job in Oklahoma City at WKY, the number one station there, and I quit college and I moved uh, to Oklahoma and I never looked back. And uh, I, to this day, wonder what it would have been like if I would stayed in college, gotten my degree, but it certainly hasn't damaged my career that I don't have one. You went from news reporter to news re- director, and in 1991, you lost your job at a time when radio was not hiring. How did you feel unemployed, and how long did it take you to get another position, which we'll talk about shortly? I was devastated. Uh, When I lost my job in 1991, uh, the radio station I was at in Denver had been bought and sold three times in three years. The last owner didn't really want the station. They were buying a sister station in L.A. to get to get that one, and they happened to get Denver by accident. And they just started going into the payroll and whacking off guys that were making a decent amount of money, and I was one of them. Now, I was heavily involved in the community. I lived in Bailey, Colorado, a little mountain town, about 6,000 people, way up in the mountains, but an hour outside of Denver, beautiful town. I was, uh, I was involved in the church. I was on the school board. I was president of the school board. I was immersed in the community. I had two little kids who were in grade school and, of course, a wife, and I just thought, your life is over. You're never going to work again. Radio is bad right now, and nobody's hiring, and particularly not radio news directors. And uh, I went, it wasn't long, but for that, I remember that week, I must have vacuumed the carpet a hundred times. It seemed to be cathartic to me when I would vacuum, and I was able to think, but I couldn't think very many good thoughts about my future. I really thought, it's not going to work. But little did you know that your next position would be a turning point in your career. With no experience as a program director, you interviewed for that position at WJR in Detroit. You had to go to New York City to meet with the key decision maker. How did you pitch yourself? Well, it is kind of an amazing story that I got the job. Here I am, an out-of-work news director in Denver, never been a PD before. But I called uh, Lee Larson, my friend at KOA, who was the general manager there, and he'd almost hired me two times to be his PD at a big news talk station. And and the last time he let me down easy, he said, you know, I'm not going to hire you. I'm hiring from within, but you could program any station like this in the country and I'll recommend you if you need my help. And I said, you know, that's very nice of you, Lee. Uh, Thank you very much. And I didn't think much about it for six months, and then I lost my job. So I called up Lee, and I said, remember that promise you made to recommend me? He said, oh, absolutely. I've already fulfilled it. I've already recommended you to Don Belucas, the president of ABC Radio New York. They're looking for a PD at WJR in Detroit. You interested? And I said, well, absolutely. He said, well, he's going to call you tomorrow. Be ready. 
and he did. And, you know, I was out of work, so I was free. When he said, I need somebody immediately, I said, can I get on the next plane to Detroit? And he said, absolutely. I'm impressed with that attitude. And so I was. Now, I'd never been to Detroit, never heard WJR. And it's in the middle of February. I fly in. It's the frozen tundra. The lakes are all covered. It's, uh, you know, if you've never been to Detroit, it's a wonderful city. But you don't see the sun for six months from November to April. And so it was cold and uninviting. I went into downtown Detroit driving around in my rental car, and I see people warming themselves over open fires on the sidewalk. Uh, it, was a, it was a difficult time in Detroit. And I'm listening to the radio station as I'm driving around, and I'm writing down ideas on a yellow legal pad. And I fill up a yellow legal pad with things this station is doing wrong. Now, keep in mind, I've never programmed a station, but I've been with radio all my life. I've been a news director, and I think I can fix this. So I fill up this legal pad. You studied the station. I want to be sure our listeners understand, Phil, because those searching for new positions need to follow what you did. You did research, right? So you listened to the programs on that station. Is that what you're explaining? Yeah. As soon as I got the rental car at the airport, I get out of the airport, I turn on the station, I'm driving around town, I'm listening to that station, and I'm writing down what they're doing wrong and some of what they're doing right, but mostly, I thought, doing wrong. Things that I would fix if given the opportunity. Can you give us an example? so that we understand what, what, for example, would you fix? Well, I will give you one example. Uh, When I got on the freeway, I looked at the first billboard I see coming out of the airport is for my station, and it says WJR, Great Voice of the Great Lakes. And I'm thinking, well, that's interesting, but I don't know what that means. How does that describe the station? How does that make me want to listen? The next billboard was WWJ, traffic and weather, on the 8s all day long. And I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, we're in trouble. That tells me what that station's all about. And every time I drove around town, I saw a billboard for WJR with the Great Voice of the Great Lakes, and then immediately after, I saw the competitor's billboard. They were positioning themselves to take our image. Now, the station had been in decline for five straight years. And WWJ was trying to steal all of WJR's listeners, and one of the ways was traffic and weather. As I listened to WJR, I heard traffic and weather, but I didn't hear it on the 8s. I didn't know where I heard it. I didn't know how often. Was it 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 10? I couldn't tell. They, were, they had all of the elements to put it together, but they hadn't figured out how to put it together. And they were having a frontal assault by a CBS-owned all-new station, that was climbing up their tailpipe. So, of course, those were things that I immediately thought, I can fix this. Uh, so, you know, when I, after I'd listened to the station for a few days, I thought, okay, I'm ready to go to New York. And I got on the plane, and I went in to see Don Belucas. Now, he's a very intimidating man, and he's my friend to this day. In fact, I saw him recently. He looks like a mafia Don. He works in a high-rise office building in New York that's scary and intimidating. You know, the cavernous, you go in there and, and, and you just get prepared to, to, to be uh, uh, killed. So I go in there and I meet Don, and I sit down and I start talking to him about the station and I start giving him my ideas. Now, I have in my briefcase my yellow legal pad, including many ideas that I wrote down that I never had time to get to. 
And as, as I finished the interview, and we talked for two hours, I'm walking out, heading to the elevator, thinking, you dummy, you never opened your briefcase. All those ideas on that yellow legal pad, you never got to them. All those ideas you left on the table. And he's thinking, that guy just told me what was wrong with the station for two hours, and he never opened his briefcase. He never looked at his notes. He had it in the top of his head. This guy gets it. So I got the job. I just thought I had lost it. Maybe it was a lack of self-confidence. But I obviously had enough confidence to pitch myself to him, pitch my ideas to him, and convince him that I knew what I could do to fix it. So it was a couple of weeks later that I got a call from the station general manager. Now, I didn't mention this, Arlene, but I couldn't see the station while I was visiting Detroit because the general manager had gone into hiding for six or seven weeks. He had fired Ernie Harwell, the legendary voice of the Detroit Tigers, and he had literally TV news trucks parked in his front lawn trying to catch him coming out of his house to ask him, why did you do this? Why did you fire Ernie Harwell? So he ran away. He went to Florida and hid. So I couldn't interview with him when I was there, so he had to call me back, and he said, I'm coming back to Detroit. Can you come see me? And I said, I'll be there the day you're back. And I was there in his office, and I pitched him again and uh, pitched him this time, and he was impressed, and he hired me. And uh, I went from out-of-work news director to program director of the number one station in market number six, and I started to implement the ideas that I had told them I thought could be implemented. And uh, you remember those billboards that I told you about? Right. WWJ was buying the billboard after our billboard? Yeah. You know how I stopped them from doing that? I went to the billboard company and I said, you know, you've got a lot of empty billboards. I want to buy rotating billboards that will be up for two days and then taken down and moved. I just want you to take this billboard and stick it up here, then move it, then stick it up here and move it all over town. And I bought about five or ten of them, I think that were rotated. They said, okay, we got a lot of empty billboards. We'll do it. So I had boards that I would put up for two days, just enough for WWJ to see that we had the billboard. They would try to buy the billboard behind it. Then I would move. And like, where did he go? Well, then I'd be across town. They'd try to buy that billboard. Then I would move. I pretty <laughs> soon convinced him, don't be buying billboards. Don't be, do not surround me. Do not do that to me. I won't, I won't put up with it. I also had a funny experience there with, uh, uh, you know, we had such a battle with WWJ. It was a great battle. Uh, the, the program director there, a guy named Roger Nadell, I actually saw him a couple weeks ago. Uh, I still know him to this day, but we had a knockdown dragout fight. And one of them was over. You remember I talked to you about traffic and weather every 10 minutes? Right. I was, I was not going to let that station steal my traffic image. So you know what I did? I went to the company that owned their helicopter, and I worked a deal to put my pilot in their helicopter so that my pilot was flying their helicopter so that I could say on the air, we guarantee we're going to get there first. Why? We're in the driver's seat. <laughs> and, I was, and I worked a deal where every now and then, for special events, I could put the call letters of WJR on their helicopter. So when they had a client event at the 4th of July fireworks display, I put my helicopter over the river of Detroit, flying up and down, 
with my call letters on the side of their helicopter, and I figured out where their client party was, and we buzzed it. And I think the guy about blew a gasket when he saw that chopper come down with my call letters over his party. But you know what? We, we were not going to let them steal our traffic and weather image. And that's how we, we fought it out and duked it out for all the four years I was there. And after the four years, we had stopped the ratings decline. The ratings had improved. We were doing great. And Don Belucas, the scary guy who had originally found me, asked if I wanted to come to New York and program WABC, the most listened to news talk station in the nation. So I did it. And I lasted for 14 years. What I think is interesting at WABC, one of the things at least, is that you rebuilt the station, but when they hired you, they didn't tell you that it needed rebuilding. And that's not uncommon. When employers hire new employees at whatever level, they don't necessarily tell them what the problems are. So consequently, they're suddenly faced with surprises. Some can handle the surprises and succeed. You were able to do that. Others cannot. Tell us about the WAC experience in terms of the firing of Bob Grant, who became the wrong fit. How did that come about? Well, I got there in 1995. WABC was the number one AM in New York and the most listened to news talk station in the nation. But it was built on a house of cards because the hosts they had employed were incendiary. They were frequently being attacked by special interest groups. And while they were great hosts and they did generate ratings, it was a hard time selling them. And WABC was owned by a radio-only company, but... During my first year there, we were bought by a big company, the Walt Disney Company. Now, Walt Disney didn't really buy us for radio. They didn't really understand radio. They didn't really like talk radio. They were scared of it. They were particularly scared of the, the incendiary nature of talk radio and particularly of boycotts. The last thing they wanted was, was to have people boycotting Disney World and theme parks because of something one of my crazy guys said on the radio in New York. So they immediately called me in, and this was after I'd been there, well, a little less than a year, and they, they maybe less than that, I can't remember, maybe, maybe only a few weeks, but they warned us, we're not going to let you guys get away with what you've been getting away with. You need to tone it down. So I remember talking to Bob Grant, and I warned him that there's a target on your back. Now, keep in mind, Bob Grant was, was a fiery, incendiary, take-no-prisoners guy. But he was a radio guy, and he understood the business. But he had gotten in trouble saying things that he shouldn't have said. And uh, he had been on the cover of New York Magazine just a few months before I got there with the big headline, Bob Grant, Why He Hates Blacks. Well, of course, he didn't hate blacks, but they wanted to make him, tarnish him as a racist. So there was a target on his back, and I warned him. And during that first year, he was pretty good about keeping it under control until one day the O.J. Simpson verdict came down and he was acquitted, of course, as we all know. I see Bob Grant walking through the hallways. He's seething, uh, smoke coming out of his ears. And I call him in and I say, Bob, I see you're visibly shaken and angry by this. Are you sure you're able to do the show today? And he looked at me and he said, 
what do you think, Phil, that I'm not a professional, that I haven't been here before, that I can't do this? You think I can't do my show today and, and keep it in line? Is that what you think? And I said, no, Bob, I think you can. I trust you can. Go do a good show. Just be careful. And he went in there, and he did a good show. In fact, one of his best. I mean, he was fiery and passionate, tiptoed to the line but didn't cross it until the last minute of the show. And here's what he said. Sooner or later, O.J. Simpson's going to get what he deserves. Now, I can't tell you what that is, but I can think it, and I can hope for it, and I can pray for it. This is Bob Grant. See you tomorrow. Now, of course, that sends shivers up and down your spine. And it was a great way to end the show, but I was worried. And I called him in after the show, and I said, Bob, great show. Thanks for keeping it together. I'm very proud of you, except for one thing. Can you not repeat that line about encouraging somebody to whack O.J. Simpson? Because if they do, they might blame you for it. And he said, you know, you're probably right. I, I won't say that again. And he didn't. Now, the Disney police didn't get him for that. But it was a few months later that the plane crash occurred where Ron Brown, the Commerce Secretary of the United States, was on the plane. There were 41 people on the plane in Bosnia. It crashed in a rainstorm. And Bob's on the air during the story. And he has a listener on the air, and the listener knows that Bob has been a frequent critic of Ron Brown. So the listener is kind of laughing with Bob about the plane crash. And Bob says, you know what? I understand. A word, a new news reports now tell us there's, there's one survivor out of 41. By my luck, any luck at all, if it's my luck, it'll be Ron Brown. Well, so it was sort of making light of the fact that Ron Brown might be killed. And it was a couple of weeks later that somebody in USA Today, I think it was Dwayne Wickham, wrote a horrible scathing attack piece on Bob Grant asking Disney, why don't you do something about this guy? Well, Disney did. They called me and they said, go fire him. So I fired Bob Grant, the number one host in New York City. He had a seven share on WABC. He took the seven share across the street to my competitor, and he took half his listeners, half of my listeners with him. So I, I lost half my listeners overnight. Now, I thought uh, it would take five years to build back WABC. I didn't tell very many people that because you don't really get five years in this business. We're like NFL head football coaches. They want you to turn around overnight. But I, I knew it would take five years to build it back. I am fortunate to say that I did. And five years later, to the book, we got back to number one news talk station in the nation, number one AM in New York. But during that time, it was a rough ride, one in which I actually got fired uh, at first and then magically rehired. So it was, a, it was a fascinating experience that, that I wouldn't exchange for anything. I think I learned more about radio in that five years than any other time in my life. You set the standard in selecting the top American radio talk show hosts. Here's what you said in Radio Inc. magazine about Sean Hannity. Bringing Sean on board was the defining moment in WABC's history as a talk station, perhaps the most important decision I ever made. I never met a talk show host or really anybody in the business more driven to, to, to succeed. When you combine that drive and determination with his natural charisma, 
personality, and work ethic, you get a lethal combination. Tell us the Sean Hannity hiring story. Well, it is a great story because Sean actually reached out to me before I fired Bob Grant, wanting to come back to New York. He was a native of Franklin Square, Long Island. He was working as a talk show host in Atlantic uh, in Atlanta at WGST, and he was doing fairly well there. Uh, and he wanted to come home. And, he, and so I didn't have an opening for him, but I, I was impressed with him. When I fired Bob Grant, he called immediately and said, I'm the guy to replace Bob Grant. Well, he was 31 years old, and he was talented, but I always thought you don't want to be the guy to replace a legend. You want to be the guy that replaces the guy that tried to replace a legend. So when Sean, a couple months later, called me and said, look, I'm coming to New York. I'm being flown up there to interview for this job with the Fox News Channel. Nobody knew what that was yet. Hadn't gone on the air yet. Nobody heard of it. Uh, and I want to meet with you. And I said, all right, let's go to lunch. And, and I think he actually thought I was going to offer him a job. When we met for lunch, I said, look, I'm not going to offer you the job, Sean. You don't want to be the guy to replace a legend. But I recommend that you take this job at the Fox News Channel. Move your family up here, and after you get settled, you give me a call, and I'll find you a place. But there's one thing I need you to do. When you negotiate your contract with the Fox News Channel, put a clause in your contract that gives you the right to do the radio show for me. If you don't do that, they might not let you. So he did that. Now, I had gotten this idea in a wild way. A few years before, Lou Holtz had left Arkansas and gone to coach Notre Dame, and he'd put a clause, no, no, I, I beg your pardon. He went to coach Minnesota, but he had put a clause in his contract that if the Notre Dame head coaching job ever came up, he would be given the right to take that job. And eventually, a year later, he did. He, and he ended up having a successful career at Notre Dame. So I'm thinking, I want to get this guy here, but I'm going to do it slowly because I don't want to put him in the gun sights of replacing Bob Grant. So he started at the Fox News Channel, and he did his show at night, Hannity and Combs, from 9 to 10. Then he'd come over to WABC, and he did 11 to 2 a.m. And he was number one, his first book, second book, third book, fourth book. Meanwhile, in the afternoons, I had put a liberal in to replace Bob Grant, and I was getting killed. So I thought, you know, I paid my dues here. I put enough time between the firing of Bob and the new guy. I'm going to put the new guy in. And I put Sean Hannity in Afternoon Drive in January of 1998. A lot of people don't remember what happened. But a week or two later, the Monica Lewinsky scandal broke, and Sean was off to the races. And it wasn't long before he was actually beating Bob Grant on the competition across town. He was so good, you couldn't turn him off. And he had great numbers. And after a couple of years, I thought, you know what? In 2001, he's ready to syndicate. When I first suggested to Sean that I wanted to take him national and syndicate his show, uh, nobody had done that. No program director in America had done that. There have been other people syndicating, of course, but no PD syndicated his own guy. That was heresy, to let your guy be heard in other places. But I knew if I didn't do it, somebody else would. At that point, Sean had already become Rush Limbaugh's number one substitute host, and I knew they would steal him away from me if I didn't do it. So I had to talk him into it. He didn't want to do it at first. He said, you know, Phil, I just want to be number one in New York. I don't really feel like syndicating, uh, and I just want to do my own show. I don't want somebody changing it. 
and said, Sean, nobody's going to change your show. You'll be number one in New York. You'll be number one in a bunch of other places. We can do this, and we'll do it together. And we did. We decided to launch him on September 10th, 2001, and, of course, you know what happened the next day. All hell broke loose. It was day two of his syndicated show. He and his entire crew were stranded on Long Island. They couldn't get into the city. They had shut down the entrance and the exit. Anybody on Manhattan couldn't leave, and anybody out of Manhattan couldn't get in. And that included Sean. I was able to borrow a radio studio from a Long Island radio station and pipe his show in to WABC and get him on the air in almost a miracle way on day number two. And he did a great show. And, of course, the events of 9-11 captivated America. And Sean, again, was off to the races. Phil? Talking about terrorism. Yeah. Phil? Yes. Hello? Phil? Did you lose me? We seem Hello? to have disconnected from Phil for some reason. I'm still here. Oh, you are. Oh, okay. I didn't. I I couldn't hear you, Phil. Okay. Maybe. Uh, maybe. Maybe we lost the connection. Where did yeah, you lose me? Yeah, we lost you want me the to connection it? briefly. I think it had. Well, in Los Angeles, we we have a tremendous amount of rain. Uh, I don't know what it's like in New York, but maybe because of the rain. Something happened with our connection here. All right, that well, could very. Be, yeah, but I'm back. Good, terrific. Um, let's go a bit further. Um, so, basically, Sean Hannity, it sounds, not only met your blueprint of the right fit talk show host, but exceeded your standards. What would you say? Yeah, he did. Um, he was the defining moment. Um, during my five years of trying to build WABC back, I tried a lot of different things. I thought, you know, I'll broaden the station's perspective. I'll bring in different hosts. I'll attract different kind of audience, different people. I don't have to be all right-wing all the time. Everything that I did that got away from the station's model and the station's expectation from listeners failed. But when I did something like a Sean Hannity. It worked beyond my imagination. So I put Sean on after Rush, and it wasn't long before he was holding the Rush audience. So I, I began to get it, and I, I began to create a radio station that fed off of itself. I, I call it a feeding frenzy. I also use the term, and I, and I know you like to use the jigsaw puzzle analogy. Right, that's right. I use the jigsaw puzzle analogy in building the lineup of WABC. I figured out that each piece had to fit together, and it had to make sense, and that it had to create a story so that when you stood back and looked at the pieces together, listeners could understand what this station was all about. You know, when you put a jigsaw puzzle together, you cannot force a piece there that doesn't fit. Right. You can hammer it in with a hammer, and it will not stay. Well, that was sort of the, what I found. When I put Sean out on after Rush, and I'd had a liberal on after Rush, but that didn't work. I was counter-programming Bob Grant with a liberal. I figured, well, Bob, Bob will steal all the conservatives, I'll steal the liberals. Didn't work. When I put Sean on after Rush, he held the audience. Then I found Mark Levin, and I put him on after Sean. So what we did was we took three hours of Rush. We made it six hours of Rush and Sean. Then we made it nine hours of Rush, Sean, and Mark Levin. And before long... WABC had the highest time spent listening of any radio station in America. 
by the spring of 2008, we we scored 11 hours and 42 minutes of TSL. Now, that means time spent listening. It means the average listener was listening 11 hours and 42 minutes a week, which is staggeringly high. So what I figured out was if I put the pieces together, even though they're talking about many of the same subject matter, because of their unique personalities, the charisma, the delivery, their style, their storytelling abilities, each host would be different. They could talk about the same thing, but they would always bring something new and different to the table. So that's how we did it, and I'm very proud of, of doing it, and I'm proud of the guys that helped me do it. Well, you match to the listening audience is what you did, giving them different personalities to select from, but with similar, similar messages. Yeah, and you know what? It was very odd. Our, uh, I, I get an opportunity to bring back Bob Grant, Arlene, uh, 11 years after I fired Bob Grant and, of course, blew up WABC. And so half my listeners leave me. He was out of work and, and sort of in a forced retirement, and he was miserable and wanted to get back on the air. He was, he was getting up there. I'm sure he was over 70, but I brought him back, and I put him on at night. And that was like the final piece to the jigsaw puzzle. All was right with the world again. Bob had learned from some of the things he had said that were incendiary before. He was a little more careful. And uh, we created a lineup that was so good, it would just feed off of itself. I had Curtis and Kuby in the morning. I stole John Gambling from WOR, put him in uh, 10 to noon. Then, of course, I had Rush and Sean and Mark. I put Bob Grant on and Laura Ingram. And I had an overnight show that was incredible, coast to coast. And it was just a great station and uh, had a great, great run there. I'm so delighted and, and spent 14 years there. On the Blog Talk Radio Network, we have 30,000 talk show hosts and 1,300 live shows a day. What advice do you have for BTR talk show hosts to help them succeed? My advice to, to them would be make your show as legitimate and as professional as possible. Imagine in your mind that you're on WABC. Don't think about the fact that you're on uh, the Internet or that maybe you don't have the audience they have. Be as professional as you can be and create a show that's a destination program, one that people can't turn off, one that people will seek out and find. And you know what? One of these days, you never know. Somebody may come to WABC from that realm. I'm certainly willing to consider that there could be a host there that might stand out. Why not? You know, radio has destroyed its own farm team. We used to be able to develop talk show hosts in smaller markets. But smaller markets have uh, not been able to come up with the money to hire people anymore. There are still some out there, and I'm looking uh, all the time. I want to find the next Sean Hannity or the Mark Levin or the next Laura Ingram. So who knows? Maybe it could be there. I think it's a great place to develop talent. I'd like to talk a bit more about radio later, but first I want to talk about the fact that you're a transformation expert who has rebuilt stations and networks. You excel in managing the process. How do you convince others that your suggested changes are the right fit for them? Well, you know, we've all worked for somebody that we truly admired. 
I always thought in this business that if you want to succeed, you go to work for the smartest guy you can find and let him lead you. In many respects, I try to be that person. And so what I do is I'm able to convince people that I know how this works, but I don't do it with smoke and mirrors, and I don't play games. Uh, I am very honest with people. My management style is that of honesty. I have developed an ability to manage talk show hosts who are notoriously difficult to manage. I sometimes liken it to the lion tamer going into the cage with just a chair and a whip. I can, I can do that because I don't lie to people. I don't try to kid them and cajole them. I don't BS them. I give them honesty, and I treat them with respect. And I think people respect that, and I think they admire that. And the fact that I have done this, I do know what I'm talking about. I'm not just blowing smoke and mirrors. I think that, that makes sense to people, and, and they're willing to listen. How do you ensure that the changes are implemented? I know that you told me when we talked prior to the show that it's a thrill for you to actually hear the implementations because they can happen very quickly. Yeah. Well, it is a true thrill for any program director to have a great idea in the morning and have it coming out of the speaker in the afternoon. Um, If you've got a good staff that can implement things, they'll feel the passion too. You're constantly wanting to reinvent yourself as a radio station every day. You constantly have to come up with new and different reasons that people will come listen to you, generate emotion and passion and excitement. So when you do that and you hear that coming out of the speaker, some new idea that you came up with, it's absolutely a thrilling moment, and it's something that I don't think is easily duplicatable in a lot of lines of business. How do you use air checking to manage the talk show hosts? I know we talked about that as well prior to the show. I know I remember when you told me that Sean Hannity refused to have air checking. Can you explain no, about will. that and uh, how you use it to uh, give feedback to your talk show hosts? Well, it, it really depends on the host. I, I think yeah, you develop a different style for each one of them. There are some that respond well to air checking and some that loathe it. Sean was one that couldn't stand it. When I moved him from nights to afternoons, one of the things he asked me to do, or really made a demand, he said, I'll I'll move to afternoons under one condition. You have to promise that you'll never air check me. Now, for those of you that don't know air checking, that just means you're being called in to the PD's office, you're you're sat down, and you have to listen to a half hour or hour segment of the show he just did. And it's, for some people, brutal and agonizing to actually listen to what you did. Others can't get enough of listening to themselves, but there's a lot of hosts that they feel very uncomfortable listening to what they did, listening to their own voice coming out of the speaker. Sean was one of those. So what I would do with Sean, instead of air checking him, I would go in before his show about an hour before, sit down at the desk and prop my feet up, sometimes in the studio, sometimes his office. And we'd just chat about what was going on, and it would eventually get around to the show, eventually get around to topics and content and callers and all these different elements of the show that make it work. And we would just chat. And it was two, three, four months uh, later 
that he stopped in the middle of one of our meetings, and he said, wait a minute, you're air-checking me, aren't you? I laughed, and I said, what do you mean? He said, you promised you wouldn't air-check me. I demanded that, and, and now you're doing it. This is your way of air-checking me. And I, we had a big laugh about it, and I said, well, maybe in a roundabout way, but it's not so painful, is it? I mean, we need to talk, and this is not so bad. And, of course, we continued to do that for the entire time that we worked together. And uh, uh, obviously at some point, Sean and I developed a very close rapport, and he developed a trust with me, and uh, he knew I had his back. And, you know, when he would want to try something that was a little wild or wacky, he would come in before he did it and run it past me, whereas a lot of guys used to just do it and hope they didn't get caught. But with me, he wanted me to reassure him that this was okay, that, that he could probably do that and not get in too much trouble. You know, when you think about doing talk radio on a station like WABC, when you're being heard by a million and a half people, and you're being owned by a big company that doesn't particularly have much tolerance for controversy, you're playing without a net. You're doing live, unscripted radio for three hours. You're taking callers. The callers are, many of them, trying to goad you into saying something you shouldn't. Uh, you're passionate. Sometimes you're mad. Sometimes you're emotional. And you can say anything. And it's difficult to know where that line is. And you've got to have a strong programmer who shows you that line. I think the weak PDs that I've seen in this business were ones that didn't established the line, didn't help hosts understand what they could get away with and what they couldn't. That was my job, WABC. At TRN, you set the standard again. As an entrepreneur, you spin off new entities. Instead of selling individual shows to a single station, TRN offers an entire lineup. I know that it's a first for TRN. Is it a first for radio? Well, I think that it may be because Talk Radio Network is the largest independent syndicator of talk radio programming in the country. And we're probably the only company that can do what I call turnkey talk radio. And that means we can go to a radio station and provide enough programming to fill their entire day. And other syndicators have various shows here and there. But we have shows throughout the day parts from morning till noon tonight. We just did this this week in Washington, D.C. We put on AM 730, The Truth, and it's got America's Morning News in the morning, 6 to 9, Laura Ingram, 9 to noon, Michael Savage, noon to 3, Jerry Doyle, 3 to 6, Savage comes back to do 6 to 9, Rusty Humphreys, 9 to midnight, and Phil Hendry, overnights. Um, it's a unique thing that we can offer. And it's in, it's, there's an advantage to radio stations because they don't have to deal with multiple syndicators. They can just deal with one. We're coming off the same satellite. We plug it in. In the case of this station in Washington, D.C., I actually had the opportunity to name the station. I had the opportunity to write the liners and sweepers and bumpers. I hadn't done that for a few years since I'd been at WABC. But when we got the opportunity to get our get the keys to the station, and this only happened maybe two or three weeks ago, I realized we want to name this station the truth. How cool would it be to have a station in Washington, D.C. and say, finally, Washington, D.C. gets the truth. Hey, Washington, can you handle the truth? There's so many different lines we have 
been able to write for the station. And it's so much fun for me to be able to get back in and do this. You know, at WABC, I had one station that was the most listened to in America. But at TRN, I look at it like I have 800 stations. They're all mine. I want them all to succeed. And sometimes I have an opportunity to use some of those skills that I developed at WABC like this time and, and try to really position the station and, and market it and, and help it succeed. It's tough in Washington because it's on the AM band, and it's one of the tough uh, AM band markets in America. But you know what? It's going to sound good. It already sounds good, and I'm, I'm real happy and having fun with it. Comment on the future of terrestrial radio and Internet radio. What do you see happening? Well, I do admit that the listening patterns are going to continue to grow toward the Internet. Uh, Those of us in terrestrial radio have to recognize changing technology. Just like the railroads of yesteryear were not really in the railroad business, they were in the people-moving business, and they allowed airplanes to take their lunch money and run with it. We cannot allow Internet radio to take our lunch money. Uh, What we have to do is get on the Internet and any other form of technology. We're content providers. Listeners will find the content wherever that content lands. So we have to broaden out. I think there's going to be a battle for the dashboard. And there's going to be a dash for the dashboard. Who's going to control the dashboard? I think the Internet is coming to the dashboard, Wi-Fi. And when that happens, listeners are going to be able to listen to anything they want Traditional talk radio, terrestrial talk radio, has to be so good that listeners will find it and listen to it, and has to be so good that it will withstand the competition of, as you say, 30,000 hosts popping up on blog talk radio. That's the challenge. How can we do that? And the future is yet to be written. It's going to be fun. It's going to be fascinating. Your personal life. Recently, you celebrated your mother's 90th birthday. She must be very proud of you. You're married, two children that are grown, three grandkids. Which little one has the potential to be a talk show host? The littlest one, little baby Desi. She's 10 months old, but talk radio is in her blood. Her father's a talk show host. Her mother is very opinionated because she's my daughter, and her grandpa is a talk radio guy. She has no choice. She's going to be a talk show host whether she likes it or not. (laughs) Your wife is less than delighted when you're in a shopping mall together and you're plugged into the radio listening to your shows. I, I have done this for years, and it drives her crazy. We'll go shopping in the mall, and she'll look up, and I'll have my headsets on or my, my ear plugs in, and I'm listening to my station, and she's trying to ask me a question. And, I, uh-huh. uh, and I'm not listening to the game. I'm listening to my own station. I, I just I never have gotten over the thrill of being the program director of a big radio station. It's just a thrill. And, you know, Some people have other things that thrill them. Well, that's mine. And does it make me a geek and a nerd? Absolutely. And I wear that badge proudly. Your passion for radio is as strong today as it was when you were a child. Did you ever think that the radio stations that you listened to as a child would carry your network's shows? I never did think it. 
but it happened not too long ago. When I was 12, 13 years old and I was getting the radio bug, I would listen to KOMA out of Oklahoma City. I was in Pueblo, Colorado, which is about 800 miles from Oklahoma City, and that station would boom in at night. It just covered that area. In fact, it reaches 20 states, I think, at night and up all into Nova Scotia. I would listen to Charlie Tuna doing the jockeying, and I would listen to William Engler, KOMA, 2020 News. That's actually where I got the bug to be a news guy, was listening to William Engler, KOMA, 2020 News. You know why they call it that? They did the news at 20 after and 20 till for no other reason than nobody else was doing it at that time, so they thought they would. Plus, it had a kind of a cool ring to it, 2020 News. But I listened to that station and got the radio bug. Well, years later, now here I am at TRN, we, have, we launched a morning show on that very frequency. It's now KOKC, 1520, Oklahoma City. They were one of the first believers in America's Morning News, a show that we launched uh, in June of 2009. And they took the show out of the gate. So that little radio station I used to listen to under my pillow in Pueblo is now broadcasting one of my shows. In fact, they've got three or four of my shows on that station. Uh, this past week, I actually got a chance to meet the general manager who worked with me when I was in Oklahoma when I was like 21 years old. So it's, it's fascinating to see something like that happen that I never thought would happen. And it's a thrill to me to be able to hear that thing coming out of the speaker now. Phil, you are a win-without-competing man. Here's why. You know your core identity. Your passion for radio has propelled you to become a name brand. You think outside the box to create innovative solutions. You compete with yourself, raising the bar higher and higher, to set the standard, not copy the standard. You understand right fits, and passionately pursue them, resisting the temptation to settle for less. You have mastered the art of the pitch. You manage the process to achieve your goals. It was an honor and a pleasure to interview you today. Thank you for joining me. Well, Arlene, thank you. And let me just say, uh, I, I, don't, I don't get interviewed a whole lot, but you have been so prepared. You did your homework. You dug up stuff on me that, frankly, I'd forgotten. And you, as a good interviewer does, you were able to lead me along and get me to tell a few stories that I probably would have not otherwise told. So congratulations to you on two years of doing Blog Talk Radio, and I think this little idea is going to continue to grow. It has been a pleasure, and I hope that in the future you'll return and tell us some more fascinating stories. I, it's been a fun time, and I'll be happy to come back, Arlene. You just, you just give me a call. I hope that my interview with Phil Boyce inspired you as it did me. To listen to more today's picks, I recommend my interviews of Mary Beth Garber, the president of the Southern California Broadcasters Association, Suzanne De Laurentiis, award-winning filmmaker and president of Suzanne De Laurentiis Productions, Sherilyn Kenyon, queen of the vampire novel, 11 times on the New York Times bestsellers list, Jan Constantine, general counsel for the Authors Guild, 
who won the landmark copyright decision against Google. Anne Edwards, celebrity biographer, New York Times bestselling author, and Pulitzer Prize nominee. If you're wondering what happened to the men, go to Dr. Barrow, that's D-R-B-A-R-R-O.com, where you can view all of our today's picks for the last two years. We note that information next to the show description. A word about Ann Edwards. I recently bumped into her at Whole Foods in Beverly Hills. She's in her mid-80s, still writes dailies, and entertains frequently. Her dinner guests that night were Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner. And, of course, her husband, the famous Stephen Citron. For those who are concerned about aging, picture this dinner party. Here's my four websites. Dr. Arlene, rightfitmethod.com. Dr. Arlene is all spelled out. Visit that site for an overview of all the ways you can learn about my method. Winwithoutcompeting.com which focuses on the book, nominated for a Business Book Award and published in the United States and in India by Macmillan. To buy Win Without Competing, go online to Amazon, Borders, and Barnes & Noble. DrBarrow.com to connect to Blog Talk Radio and to listen to all of my radio shows. That's D-R-B-A-R-R-O.com. Barrowglobal.com, which is the corporate website for Barrow Global Search, Inc., a company founded on the Right Fit Method. To contact me, call 310-441-5000. Zero five. That's three ten four four one five three zero five, or email drbarrow b a r r o at winwithoutcompeting.com. It's time to say goodbye. I look forward to talking with you in November after the election. Think about how you can use my right fit method to make your votes count. Remember this trigger tip. Walk down the right fit road and you will find professional and personal success. It's all up to you. Thank you for listening to the Win Without Competing show. Goodbye for now, Dr. Arlene.